Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at the last two verses of the chapter. Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. One of the first Bible verses that I learned as a child was the memorizing of Ephesians 4.32. I may have been in the first grade. I remember this. Standing in the back of the our first grade class and the teacher uh, having us come back to, to tell her our verses one by one and standing there and reciting Ephesians 4.32. And you might ask yourself the question, why out of all the verses in the Bible would you uh, would you, in your wisdom, if you're making this decision, have a child learn Ephesians 4.32? Have you ever been on a playground <laughs> in your life? Have you ever experienced what it's like to be on a swing and have somebody push you off? Or be on the, the jungle gym, is what we called it, the monkey bars, I think that was the term we used. Do they still call it that? What do they call it now? Those metal bars that you that it just is really a death trap. Shockingly, people haven't been killed on it because uh, it's just these metal bars and you let children climb 15 feet into the air or whatever and just hang up there by their, by their shoes. I'm not joking. We would, we would hang up there by all sorts of different body parts and it was always dangerous. But have you ever been pushed off one of those? I've, I've seen kids break bones and, and it was just dangerous being on a playground. So why would you have a child memorize that verse? And the answer is because it's incredibly important because getting pushed uh, off a swing may happen to you when you're in the first grade. And you may even remember that and harbor even some grudge in your heart. I hope you don't, but maybe you do against the person who did that to you. But the problems in adulthood become much bigger than swing sets. A lot bigger. Think about how Christians think about sin. I want you to think about how Christians think about sin. We tend to evaluate the sins that we can see as worse than the ones we can't. Which is why cultural issues tend to be amplified. For example, in 19th century America, American Christians viewed smoking and theater going, now that would have been to a stage, to see, a, to see a play, as being very sinful. Those are sins you can see. The sins that become tolerated are often much worse than that because they're invisible. They go unchecked. Things like jealousy and racism. And I would add an unforgiving spirit is among those. This is the genius, by the way, of British dramas. You know, in America, we tend to emphasize the visceral, the carnal, baser sins. Our dramas, at least for me, have become very boring. It's hard to watch any kind of American drama, to, to even follow it, whether it's on a screen or on, in, in a play or even in a book, because it's all Las Vegas. I mean, everything is Las Vegas for Christians. It's just fleshly sins. But you know the things the British tend to emphasize in their drama are things like envy, and spite, and covetousness, and holding grudges. And I like that because it's so real. It's where people really are in their lives. 
those sins, in fact, lead to greater ones like theft or murder. And I think there are things in American culture that are seriously sinful. And, but even in church, they end up being celebrated like hyper-competitiveness. I was many years ago sitting in a Christian school gymnasium in Chicago watching two Christian school teams fight it out on a court while their pastor coaching one of the teams was cheering the students on as they were throwing punches at each other. And there's this hyper-competitiveness, win at all costs, and probably an overemphasis on sports, frankly. But beyond that, what about celebrity? That's something you see a lot in the Christian world, not just in the secular world. Celebrity pastors, celebrity um, Christians are, are elevated within the Christian culture even when it becomes apparent that they are living in gross sin. And yet people still celebrate them. Imagine a Christian leader being lionized for his stand against certain forms of modern music or even against modern theater going, even while simultaneously promoting his brand. And that's the modern term for celebrity. So... It kind of brings you back to this passage of scripture and you realize learning Christ as it relates to our relationship with other people is very important. It's critical that we learn how to react to conflict with other people. So let me give you a couple of ideas. Number one, we should never react to conflict selfishly. Never. People naturally, and I use that word because I use the word selfish. Do you see the connection? It's natural. We naturally respond this way to conflict. Uh, and that's why Paul writes, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice be put away from you. Now our sinful flesh responds to conflict emotionally. Here we have the words rage and anger. And they're very similar emotions. The word wrath in our text has the idea of losing your temper. Just a kind of exploding on other people. It's what happened to Paul when he was at the amphitheater in Ephesus. And the people, the crowd, lost their temper and began shouting out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And by the way, this kind of thing, losing your temper, Paul says in Galatians 5.20, it's one of the works of the flesh. It's impossible for you to say, I'm walking in the Spirit while you are simultaneously losing your temper. You just can't do that. Anger is a similar emotion. The idea here is one swelling up with indignation. And, and actually often it's translated wrath in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, it's often used to describe God's response to sin. So it doesn't mean it has to always be sinful anger. There is righteous anger. But here we're talking about the same kind of context, a sinful kind of anger. So we have losing one's temper and we have swelling up with indignation. And can I tell you something, friends? Those cannot always be seen. You can sit with a, a blank expression on your face and inside you are just boiling. 
you're like that volcano over in Hawaii ready to erupt and you're keeping it down. And, and maybe other people even see that and go, man, it's great. He's not responding. He is on the inside. And God sees that and says, that is the wrong emotion to conflict. Not only do we have negative emotions, we have negative thoughts. The flesh responds with wrong kind of thoughts. He says bitterness and malice. Do you see those? Bitterness is a refusal to reconcile with someone who's hurt you. I'm never going to forgive her. I'm not going to forgive him. It's the natural result of resentment left unchecked. It just sits and festers. And you keep it below the surface. It's not what Hebrews is describing. Talking about bitterness in that passage. Well, the root of bitterness. That's, that's a misunderstanding because of the translation. That's talking about immorality. Okay, We understand that, I hope. What Paul is talking about here is actual feelings or thoughts, rather. The thoughts where I resent somebody and I just let it go and let it go. And finally now, I have a kind of an, an acrid, um, a, a very um, acidic kind of way I think about somebody else. It's a burning feeling, a burning thought. And when you have that kind of resentment, Paul says that's a wrong thought to have about someone else. He says, in fact, it, could, it may turn into malice. And you know what malice is here? It's actually wishing ill will on other people. It's saying, wouldn't it be great if he got his? I'd really like that. I mean, I'm not going to do anything, but it'd be kind of nice if she got her comeuppance. You know, I mean, life's got a way, paying you back. And, and that is a malicious thought, to actually wish ill will on another person. So we have negative emotions. We have negative thoughts. It gets worse here because we have negative actions. And now we have, and it's interesting, by the way, that the thoughts and the emotions, they burst on the scene primarily through our words. I, I, in studying Ephesians 4, the thing that strikes me about the passage is how much is mentioned regarding our words. If you, if you really go through here and in the companion, as, it, as, text, as the, the text really goes into Ephesians 5, and you go into Ephesians 5, you just see how the emphasis is placed on our speech. But the, the outburst is not throwing of fists. The outburst isn't physical, it's verbal. And he says, okay, so I'm having bad feelings against this person. I'm thinking bad thoughts against this person. And now to that conflict, I respond verbally with clamor. And that's to shout one's frustration against another person. It's, it's really just kind of like raising your voice. And I don't know if, if you experience this when you get into these situations, but have, have you ever thought about this? At the whatever point you are beginning to raise your voice, it's indicative in conflict that you are, again, not walking in the spirit, but rather the cauldron of bitter emotions and bitter feelings and bitter thoughts are now coming out to the surface. 
And so Paul is saying here, clamor. That, that shouting of frustration. Think about loud debate where you're arguing loudly with one another. And then, of course, evil speaking. And evil speaking is the idea of just insulting somebody. The word here is to blaspheme. And it doesn't mean to blaspheme God. It means to actually just say hurtful words to somebody else. To say something that's going to, you know, cut them. Draw some blood, cause some pain, cause hurt. And, and if you think about the way Paul has constructed this, it really is quite beautiful because he puts here these, these six thoughts, these six ideas, and, and they deal with emotions, they deal with our thoughts, and they also deal with our outbursts, with our verbal outbursts. And all of that, he says, you know what? All of that, this is letter B, we should not respond that way anytime. Let all be put away from you. This type of reaction has no place in the believer's life. You go back to verse 20. Do you see what he says here? You have not learned Christ. You learned Christ. You, when you got saved, you put off the old man. You put on the new man. You began a process of sanctification, of growing in grace, of being renewed in the spirit of your mind. All of that is, is at salvation. And this kind of thing, this has no place in your life. It should be laid aside. These kinds of things should be put aside. Jesus isn't like this at all. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus faced conflict. I mean, he faced a lot of conflict. He never responds this way. He doesn't have emotions that are negative, thoughts that are negative, or verbal speech patterns that are negative. Now, he, he holds unrighteous people to his righteous standard, and sometimes he speaks that out, but it's never with that hurtful tone. It's never with that hurtful concept. Even when he's condemning them, you see him more as Lord and judge, not as a petty kind of, ha-ha, I'm going to get you. That's not how Jesus is. And we who are in conflict must put on Christ so that we respond like his attributes into that conflict. We respond selfishly. Well, that kind of response is tantamount to the other sins that are mentioned here. I mean, think about it this way, right? Is the third commandment worse than the fourth commandment? If you violate the fifth commandment, is that better than the sixth commandment? I mean, what's the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not kill, right? Is that, is that better or worse than the seventh commandment, which is thou shalt not steal? Right? Is that worse or better? What about thou shalt not commit adultery? Is that worse or better? Now all of you are thinking, I've got to figure out these commandments. Is, is covetousness is covetousness better or worse than idolatry? I mean, from God's perspective, they're all bad. Covetousness is like idolatry, actually, Paul says. And so when you think about this, when Paul lists this here next to things like stealing and lying, you know, 
holding a grudge against somebody is just as bad. It's just as wrong. It's just as sinful. And so, since responding selfishly to conflict is like stealing, it's as bad as lying, this kind of sinful reaction must be cut off. And here he says, put it away. Putting away means to carry something away from you. It's, it's like um, you decide to clean up the yard and you go out there and you get your, uh, maybe it's in the spring uh, or in the fall, whatever time of year you're doing this, and you got your rake out and you got your, 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 your big trash can and you rake up things and you put it, maybe put it into some sort of, of a trash bag and you pop that maybe out by the road if it's one of those big paper bags all that stuff, and you just clean up your yard. You've done this kind of thing. You clean up your yard, all the sticks and the branches and all the stuff that's just kind of ugly and doesn't belong. You put all that, and then you put it out on the road, and up comes the truck, and whoosh, it gets loaded on the truck, and it's gone. That's what he's saying here. Put it away. Clean up the yard of your life. Scrape all this debris up that doesn't belong there. Set it out by the road, and let God just whoosh, take it away where it's going to get burned. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. That may be easy in your mind if it's just simply someone jumping in front of you for the swing set. It's a lot harder when it's talking about a spouse who turns his back on you and leaves you in a divorce, isn't it? Years ago, I was talking to a lady who called the church and wanted some counseling. And after a number of conversations with her on the phone, um, we got to the idea of forgiveness. And she just said outright, I'm never going to forgive my husband. I will, I will not. Um, and, and, and it just came down to it. She, she had a bitterness in her heart. She said, I'm never going to overcome this. I'm not even going to try. And I'm, and I'm saying to her, if that's the truth, you need to ask yourself, are you even a believer? She was just simply saying, I'm, I'm not going to carry this debris out. And these are heavy. This isn't the little sticks now. These are the big logs, okay? This is heavy work. She says, I'm not going to do that. Jesus, uh, rather, Paul is saying, this kind of selfish reaction must be cut off. It must be carried away. This is The idea is like picking up a dead body in order to bury it. It's getting rid of selfish reactions to conflict. We have, it just has no place in the life. Now, maybe your sins are not necessarily behavioral. It's kind of easy to fool people with good behavior. Maybe they're emotional or in your mind by your thoughts. How do you respond to conflict? Do you have unresolved conflict with anyone? Have you found yourself swelling up with indignation at others? Do you struggle with jealousy? Are you a racist? And just as you should not respond to conflict selfishly, let's flip the idea now over, right? We know that. I hope you've seen that. I should not respond this way to conflict. How should I respond? Christians, this is number two, should react to conflict with kindness. This is what Paul is saying. We should respond positively. Verse 32, and be ye Kind to one another, tender hearted, 
There should be a pleasantness about us. The word kind here is the very opposite of something sharp or harsh. It just means to be gracious, just like God is gracious. I mean, hasn't he been gracious to us? Talk for a moment. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. After he's explaining in chapter 1 that we were redeemed, not by corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, he says, okay, then in chapter 2, verse 1, laying aside all malice. If you have come to believe the word which by the gospel is preached to you, verse 25, now, therefore, wherefore, on this basis, put aside malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking. Doesn't this sound familiar? And like newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word. Verse 3, if so be, you have tasted that the Lord, he is gracious to you. This is what you find in the gospel. God is gracious to me. Then we ought to be gracious to other people. If God is pleasant to me, I should be pleasant to Toward others. This is how I ought to treat my enemies, folks. I don't know that I have any enemies, but if I do, I ought to treat them like God treats me. Go back sometime and read Luke chapter 6, that, that section in Luke where it's the restatement of the Sermon on the Mount, very similar to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. A little bit different, but very similar. Jesus is preaching there how we should be pleasant toward others. Not only pleasant, but we should have sympathy. This is the yearning one feels in the gut, a sense of pity for another person's plight. It's that inward affection. It, I would say it this way. It's the word compassion. You ought to just have compassion toward people. You say, okay, I can be compassionate towards the people who are compassionate to me. Would you stop and look over at Matthew chapter 5? Go to Matthew 5. Look at the very, very end of Matthew 5. This to me is some of the most convicting verses in the Bible. Verse 43. You've heard it has been said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy. Okay. Well, I can love some people. I can love people who love me. I can love people who are compliment me or kind to me, smile to me. You know, I can, I can be nice like that. We'll look down at verse 46. If you love them which love you, what is your reward? Do not even the unbelievers do the same? I mean, everybody's like that. Everybody has sympathy on people who need sympathy, who you like. It's harder to have sympathy on people who don't deserve it. On my enemy. Go back over to Ephesians then. I'm to have that inward affection, that compassion toward people. This is exactly how God is. This is how Jesus is. You go read... Philippians chapter 1, talking about Jesus and his affection, his mercies. This is how we should be. It, it, Paul talks about Titus had an inward affection for the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were really hard people to love. Paul said he talks about this inward affection 
in the situation with Philemon and his runaway slave Onesimus. We ought to have sympathy to other people. You see, in conflict, we've set aside all those bitter, horrible things, and instead we replace those things with some, some concepts that are really helpful here. And in this case, it's a kindness and a tenderheartedness. Well, what does that mean in conflict then? It means responding to conflict with a forgiving spirit. He says, be kind, be tenderhearted, forgiving each other, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Kindness responds to conflict with godliness. With godliness. The temptation is to think of how God responded in the Old Testament to the wicked. And I know that you, you read about unbelievers and how they think about the Old Testament God. They look at the Canaanite genocidal war and go, oh, God is an angry, vengeful God. And you actually miss the fact that God is an incredibly patient and long-suffering God, even to people who were not a part of his chosen people, Israel. God loves the world. And if you walk through the Old Testament and have your eyes open, what you actually find is from the very beginning, God's compassion is to everyone. Why else does he send Jonah to the Ninevites? And when Jonah gets angry because God decides not to destroy Nineveh, what does God say to him? I shouldn't have compassion on all of these people, on all of these babies. They don't even know their right hand from their left. Shouldn't I have compassion on them? And Jonah didn't have that kind of compassion. And when I have that kind of compassion, when I respond graciously and patiently with people who are hard to be around, when I have that kind of incredibly gracious spirit, the pleasantness and the sympathy, now when they hurt me, my response to them is easy. I forgive. I mean, why wouldn't I? I mean, it's just kind of a misnomer. It, it doesn't fit together to say I have a pleasant and I have a sympathetic spirit toward people until you cross me. And then, oh, you're going to see my wrath. You'll get my Irish up. You know, I just realized maybe that's not the right expression I want to use. But you, you see what I'm saying here. I hope nobody's from Ireland, okay? I don't mean all Irish people are angry, but anyway. The fighting, okay. Hey, it's Notre Dame's, yeah. This kindness is a godly forgiveness. And it's it just releases people from their debts. You are the emotional banker of your heart. All right? I mean, you're playing Monopoly in your life. I'm really getting metaphorical here. You're playing Monopoly in your life, and you're looking over at the guy, and what is the what do you want to do when you're, you want to get as much money as you can because that's how you win the game, right? So you're wanting those kind of orangey yellow $500 bills. As much as you want everybody to land on your property. So you get, you're the emotional banker, and you can look at people who owe you and say, no big deal, don't worry about it. But I landed on your property. It's not a problem. I release you from the debt. You're the banker. You're not just the player. You're the banker. You, you get to actually say it's okay. Do you, do you realize how liberating that is? You do not 
have to look at people who hurt you and hold them accountable for that. You can actually look at people who hurt you and just say, I forgive you, even if they're not asking for forgiveness. I guess especially when they're not asking for forgiveness. You can just say, it's all right. Because that's how God is. In fact, look here, even as God. Do you see this expression? For Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Now, I have great respect for Jay Adams. He's with the Lord now. He wrote a bunch of books on counseling. Some people like to joke he wrote one book on counseling and published it about 25 different times. Okay. Uh, you read one of his books, you've kind of read them all. Uh, remind me to tell Aaron not to call me during church. That'll be good. I wonder if he's watching the service. He had a point he, had a point he wanted to give me. So, Dad, right here. Be great. No, you, you, Jay Adams had this idea that uh, this verse is a process. So really what happens here is um, God, for Christ's sake, forgave us when we asked for forgiveness. So if a person doesn't ask for forgiveness, you can choose not to forgive that person. And then you said, well, what do you do about Jesus on the cross? And Adams came back and said, well, Jesus is God, and he knew all those people who were crucifying him, that they would get saved later on so he could ask God to forgive them knowing they would later on get saved. Well, that sounds like you're really trying to dig yourself out of a pretty deep hole, doesn't it? This is not a process. This is a threshold, folks. What, what, what God is doing through Paul in this text is he's saying, to what extent did God forgive you? Let's just think about this, right? To what extent? Did he forgive me a little? I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to stand before him at the, at the Bema seat. And, and uh, he's going to say, Matt, um, I know that I told you I forgave all your sins, but I, I decided not to. I'm not going to forgive them all. And I've got some things I want to, I want to address with you. And really anything after you know, the age 10, I've decided to hold you accountable for and I'm going to put you in a real fiery place for the next three to 5,000 years. And after you kind of burn for a while, I'll let you out. Now, I'll just tell you, there's a guy who came up with that. His name is Gregory. That's part of Catholicism. That's called purgatory. We don't believe that. The Catholics have a very unforgiving God. If you think about this, did God forgive me a moderate amount? Because he says, I'll, I'll forgive all the sins of the flesh that are carnal. You live in a, you live in a really wicked society, um, so I'm going to forgive all of those sins. You couldn't really avoid them anyway. I'm going to forgive those sins. But I'm going to hold you accountable to all, all those sins uh, that, are, that were not really prevalent in your society. And if you did any of those, I'm going to hold you accountable. To, is, did God do that? Does God pick and choose? You see the threshold, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven me. To what extent did God forgive me in Christ? He forgave them all. Every single sin has been completely eradicated from my ledger, from my account. I have no spiritual indebtedness at all. None. So what right do I have? To look at another human being and say, but I will not forgive you. Let me put it this way. 
you owe me a lot of money. Oh, let's say uh, $30 million. I don't think anybody in here has $30 million. Okay, anybody have $30 million? Raise your hand. We'd like to see that. Yeah, okay, nobody's willing to raise your hand. So I don't think any, let's say 50 million, all right? So now we're safe, right? 50 million, nobody's got $50 million in here, okay? Let's just say you owe me $50 million. You can't hope to repay it. You can't repay it. And I look at you and I say, you know what? That's okay. I'm going to release you from that debt. You're, you're, you're out. You don't have to pay it back. And then you, you, you come up with an idea. You've just been hauled up in front of me and you didn't like that whole experience. The whole thing's kind of humiliating maybe a little bit and, and you, you didn't enjoy it. And so there are people who owe you and you go find a guy and he owes you 10 bucks. And you say, uh, hey, you owe me 10 bucks. He says, I'm sorry, turns out his pockets. I got nothing. I don't even know. I'm not even having lunch today. I, I got, I've got nothing. What little bit of money I make today, I'm going to go buy some food so my family doesn't starve. We've got nothing. Now you say, well, what right do you have to do that to somebody if God, <laughs> if I just forgave you that big debt? Of course, you know, you know this is a parable, right? Everybody knows that, right? This is a parable that Jesus gave. Somebody, somebody offends me, even, even in a terrible, horrible, awful way. The worst way imaginable. What right do I have to look at that person and say, I will not forgive you? The moment I say that, do you know what I'm saying? I am speaking an offense at the cross. Because I'm saying at the cross, you owe me my forgiveness but I will not show that same forgiveness to anybody else. You see, this kindness really is forgiveness, and God is our example. And God forgives us because of Jesus. We didn't deserve it. We often don't even seek it. Forgive me for my presumptuous sins, David writes. Jesus gave himself completely for our sins, so we should give ourselves completely to forgiveness of sins, and that's the threshold. So do you have a kind and sympathetic heart toward others? Do you react to conflict with that sweet, forgiving spirit? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for